Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. I'm Gemma Ware in London, and for this episode, I'm joined by my colleague Wale Fitade in Lagos, Nigeria. Hello, Wale. Hi, Gemma. Good to be with you. This week, why insurgent groups in northern Nigeria continue to kidnap schoolchildren. And why the government has been unable to improve the security situation in the region. They use the children to negotiate during conflict. And we speak to a researcher who has interviewed Kenyan women about why they joined the militant group Al-Shabaab. So because you're not strong as an individual, now you feel like joining the Al-Shabaab. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, The World Explained by Experts. Gemma, today I'm going to take you to Nigeria. Wale, where are we talking to you from? I'm talking to you from Lagos, but today we are going to talk about the north, specifically the northeastern part of Nigeria. And what's it like in the north? The north used to be very beautiful. We have partly desert, partly savannah. You can stand in a particular location and see farther, farther, far without any structure obstructing your view like the forest that you have in the south. But now it's been pretty scary these days because now it's seen of banditry, kidnapping and terrorist attacks. And we're talking today about children in particular. So what's it like being a child growing up in this part of Nigeria in the north? Children used to roam around and move freely. But now to be a child in the northeastern part of Nigeria is more likely to be kidnapped, abducted or taken away in the classroom or on the way to school. Are children still being kidnapped? Oh, yes. We had an incident in December last year where 333 students were kidnapped. More than 300 students are missing after gunmen on motorcycles stormed a government school in Kankara, Katsina State. Some days later, another batch of students were kidnapped from an Islamic school in Mauta, too, in Casina State. It happened early hours, and uh, I got the distress call last night. And early this year, in February, 27 students were abducted in Kagara, Niger State. 27 students have been kidnapped, and then one student was shot dead, unfortunately, during uh, the operation. Some days later, 317 school girls were abducted in Yangebe. The government says gunmen on motorcycles stormed a state-run boarding school, kidnapping hundreds of children. And some days later, at the Federal College of Forestry and Agriculture, some students were kidnapped. As at now, 29 of them are still being held captive by these kidnappers. And even this week, there's been another attack, hasn't there? Yeah, there has been another attack in a town called Damasak in Borno State. Up to 100,000 Damasak residents are fleeing to Nigeria Republic. Which has witnessed several attacks. People have been chased away from their homes and some people were killed. I think about eight people. And so who is behind these attacks? It used to be Boko Haram. It's a terror group that is known for abduction, known for trying to prevent children from going to school. And it loosely translates book is forbidden. That is anything Western education is not something that they are in support of. But now that has metamorphosed into Islamic State in West Africa, ISWAP, as they are called. And then there are also other groups kidnapping for money. And these are the people that the Nigerian media loosely refer to as bandits. And so for this episode, you've been speaking to some experts about what's been happening, right? Yeah, you're correct. I've been speaking to two experts to find out more about why children are being targeted by insurgent groups, including Boko Haram and all these other groups. And then also the challenges the Nigerian government faces now in improving security in the northern part of the country. I'm Hakim Wanakwajo. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at Nye University of Nigeria, that's in Abuja. 
Akin's research focuses on the northeast of Nigeria and the neighboring region surrounding Lake Chad. I've researched extensively on the problem of Boko Haram in the northeastern part of the country. So we're talking about Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, Nigeria Republic. These are the areas that are more affected by the activities of the terrorists. He says that civilians have borne much of the brunt of the conflict involving Boko Haram. The militant organization wants to overthrow the government of President Muhammadu Buhari and create an Islamic state. Civilians have been a major casualty in the whole violence in that particular region. About 16,000 people have been killed and we've had over 2 million people that have been displaced. Recently, Akim's research has turned to look at the impact the conflict in northern Nigeria has had on the most vulnerable children. He's recently published a new research in the journal African Security on the issue and has just written an article about it for the conversation. I was able to discover that the conflict has a huge impact on the welfare and security of children in that area. A UN report showed that almost 4,000 children were killed between 2015 and 2016. That's just in one year. And while we have about 7,000 of them injured in various attacks. Children have been caught right in the middle of the conflict and have, as a result, often suffered the most. As a result of suicide attacks, as a result of air and ground strikes, as a result of extrajudicial killing by state security forces, especially on suspicions of being suicide bombers. Many of those who survive attacks are then displaced from their homes by the conflict. UNICEF reported that about 57% of the total 2 million people, those who are affected as internally displaced people in the IDP camps are children. You have about 244,000 of them suffering from severe malnutrition. And worse still, it's estimated that about 49,000 of them would die if there was no emergency treatment. So it's a serious situation that we have in that part of the region. And the more worrisome aspect of it is the massive recruitment of children as child soldiers in that area. While the conflict has only received international attention in the past five to six years, Boko Haram's activities go back at least until 2009. The activities of the group have been there for some time in terms of missionary activities. The general consensus among researchers is that the group's mostly missionary activities were peaceful. The menace of Boko Haram actually started in 2009 when the group had a clash with state security agencies. In the clashes, the Nigerian government killed an estimated 800 Boko Haram members, including the leader, Muhammad Yusuf. Muhammad Yusuf died in police custody just hours after security forces said they'd captured him in the city of Maiduguri. Police troops had stormed Boko Haram's stronghold. Following the attack, the group retaliated under its new leader, Bubaka Shekau, by launching an insurgency campaign against the Nigerian state. They started by targeting security officials or anything that has a semblance or has a figure of the state. But soon, the group shifted its focus to target civilians. Later, they were seeking means to gain international attention, so they moved towards attacking civilians because they are actually the vulnerable groups in the society. Now, civilians constitute one of their major targets. And gradually, Boko Haram militants began targeting children. They started by going to dormitories, uh, boarding houses, schools to attack the children. A staggering report from the United Nations Children's Fund says one in five suicide bombers used by the terror group is a child. 
They were used as suicide bombers then. And um, if you look at the gender dimensions, their penchant to go after girls. They also use them as domestic slaves to work for them in their camps. They use them as sex slaves. They rape them. Eventually, Boko Haram garnered international attention in 2014 when he kidnapped 276 girls in Bonu State in a place called Chibok. Female students were abducted from a school in northeastern Nigeria today. It happened in the town of Chibok. The group was relatively unknown before their kidnap of the Chibok girls. And immediately after the kidnap, there was this global campaign for the release of the children, the Bring Back Our Girls campaign. The international community is building pressure on the government of Nigeria to intensify efforts to locate the more than 250 schoolgirls kidnapped. High-profile politicians and celebrities, including then First Lady Michelle Obama, came forward posting pictures of themselves on social media, holding up banners that said, bring back our girls. Let us all pray for their safe return. Let us hold their families in our hearts. International efforts to rescue the girls involved the intervention of the Human Security Division of the Swiss government's foreign ministry and the Red Cross. Between 2016 and 2021, some hundred of the Chibok girls were freed in exchange for about 3.7 million US dollars in ransoms. Of the remaining 176, some have escaped or died, and at least 100 girls are still believed to be living in Boko Haram's captivity. Akim says it was this reaction from the international community that led Boko Haram to kidnap the girls in the first place. So that itself popularized the group. And besides that, they can also use that to negotiate for some ransom in order to fund their operations. So these are some of the reasons why children are very strategic to their activities. There are other reasons why Boko Haram continues to kidnap children. They use the children to negotiate during conflict for the release of their members that have been in prisons, because of the emotional aspect of children, they feel the government would easily listen to them. But Boko Haram is just one of the many insurgent groups in Nigeria. Across the country, conflicts and armed groups are threatening the lives of Nigerians, such as the conflict in the West between Fulani herdsmen and Yoruba farmers. Herdsmen and farmers have been locked in a violent conflict. The most recent clashes saw 73 people killed. And security issues are now confined to the northeast of the country. Bandits and other armed groups like the Islamic State in West Africa have begun doing copycat kidnappings in the northwest of the country. Most recently in Zamfara State, when 300 schoolgirls were kidnapped and released a few days later in early March. Gunmen in Nigeria have abducted several hundred schoolgirls in what is the latest mass kidnapping in the region. The abduction happened at a boarding school in the town. Earlier this month in April, a prison in Nigeria's southeast in the town of Oweri was attacked by members of a new armed insurrection. Gunmen have freed more than 1,800 inmates from a prison in southeastern Nigeria. The gunmen share no affiliation or ideological interest with Boko Haram. Nigerian police believe a banned separatist group, the indigenous people of Biafra, was behind the attack. Whether it's Boko Haram or other insurgent groups, these all points to a much larger question around security in Nigeria. To understand more about what the government has been doing to improve the situation, I reach out to Samuel Okwade. The state of insecurity in Nigeria is rife. Currently, there's still killings, banditry, and of course, kidnapping. Samuel is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pretoria, South Africa, where he researches the government's response to the attacks by Boko Haram and how communities in the northeast of Nigeria have dealt with the conflict. Constant attacks 
being carried out by the insurgent group built my curiosity to finding out the coping strategies which they've been able to evolve over the years to ensure their continued survival within those communities. Samuel's research focuses on communities living near Nigeria's borders. We can also call these places borderlands. So these are, these are communities that you find on the borders between two independent states. And when you look at the way Boko Haram carry out their attacks, at times they live in, in some communities on the other side of the border. So when they come into Nigeria, they have to come in through these border communities. So they come into these communities that will to carry out their attacks, burn down houses, kill people, kidnap people. As part of his work, Samuel focused on six border communities in 2017 and 2018 in the northeastern states of Borno, Adamawa, and Yobe, where he looked at the Nigerian military's response to the attacks by Boko Haram. I discovered that the Nigerian government, which is supposed to be the, the major player, the key stakeholder, has failed in its uh, responsibility of combating the menace of the Boko Haram within that region and uh, within the country at large. And that's why the Boko Haram still continue to grow in leap and bound till date, and they still continue to carry out attacks within the region. And gradually, the attention is shifting to the bandits in the northwestern part of Nigeria. Samuel says this all points to the fact that there is a high rate of insecurity in Nigeria. And it's not just the Boko Haram alone now. It has spilled to the to the southern part of, of Nigeria. When we look away from the northeastern region of Nigeria and we look into the northwestern part, a lot of people have lost their lives to banditry, kidnapping, clashes between the farmers and the elders within that region. But by far, the biggest security threat continues to be Boko Haram. Until 2010, the Nigerian government had largely ignored the security conditions in northeast Nigeria. The Nigerian government was forced, was pushed to respond. And this only happened when the United States blacklisted the Nigerian state for terrorism in January 2010. The U.S. put Nigeria on a countries of interest list. It requires... Samuel is referring here to the use of a directive issued by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security in 2010, which placed Nigeria on the U.S. terror watch list alongside other so-called countries of interest. The measure effectively meant that citizens from countries including Nigeria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Somalia who traveled to the U.S. were subjected to enhanced background checks and interrogation techniques at U.S. airports. As a result of the blacklisting, a diplomatic row ensued. Nigeria's Minister of Information, Professor Dora Akunyili, described the move as unfair and discriminatory, while Foreign Affairs Minister then, Chief Ojomadweke, said the new security measures by the U.S. targeted at Nigerians is an unacceptable New Year gift. Some say it's a terrorist. Some say no, it's country of interest. We think the whole idea of country of interest is a euphemism. It's a distinction without a difference. We don't like to be on that list. But Samuel says it was this designation of Nigeria as a country of interest that eventually spurred the government in Abuja into action the year after. They decided to work on an anti-terrorism legislation and that was what led to the Terrorism Prevention Act which was signed into law in June 2011. Shortly after the president then decided to form a special joint tax force called JTF to respond. At the initial stage it was composed of 30,000 
troops and uh, they were mobilized into the northeastern states, especially the troubled areas, to combat the attacks of uh, the Boko Haram. The Joint Tax Force, made up of both members of the military and the Nigerian police force, coordinates intelligence and supports the Nigerian security forces in the fight against insurgents. While initially focusing mainly on localized counter-insurgency campaigns, its remit has expanded progressively over the years. In addition to armed protection of communities under attack by Boko Haram, members of the Joint Tax Force have more recently been tasked with providing security to displaced populations, living in camps for internally displaced people. But Samuel says much of the current strategy depends on regional and international support. At the point, they got support from within Africa and from beyond. They got support for training, they got intelligent support, and they were also supported in terms of arms and ammunition, which were donated to them by various countries of the world. And some of them even sent down troops to support in the fight uh, against uh, the Boko Haram. But the government's strategy wasn't working. The Boko Haram still continued to grow and they still continue to carry out attacks within that region. The lackadaisical attitude being shown towards the fight against insurgency has impeded or has prevented the Nigerian government from successfully fighting the menace of insurgency within the region. He says this is because the Joint Tax Force is often overpowered by the insurgents who carry superior arms and use guerrilla tactics in their attacks. The government has failed to adequately coordinate these huge resources available to them to be able to fight and combat the Boko Haram menace. When you look at the reality, the kind of weapon the military or the JTF carry is far, far, far less than what the force they are fighting is carrying. Part of the reason the government has been unable to coordinate an effective response, Samuel says, is widespread corruption. Corruption has eaten deep into the fabrics of the Nigerian state. And that is the reason why the way I make so much money to purchase arms and ammunition and then at the end of the day you discover that nothing has been purchased in the fight against this insurgency. As a result of the corruption, many Nigerian soldiers have had to survive on meager or often unpaid salaries. They are being treated like slaves in their own country and that's the situation of the soldiers. We don't have basic things to keep us going. And what are those basic things? Water, food. It's so alarming that people who are risking their lives for their country would lack this kind of things. So if they lack food, if they lack water, then <laughs> we won't be surprised that they would lack the needed firearm to combat the Boko Haram within that region. Another part of the problem is that the Joint Tax Force has allegedly engaged in unlawful killings, arrest, extortion and intimidation. They've been killing the local people indiscriminately, especially the youths and the men. And as a result of that, the people have lost trust in them. And you can see how the fight against insurgency within that region has dragged up to date to a point in which we now have another group in the northwest coming up now and carrying out kidnappings and all that. In the interview Samuel conducted for his research with people living in the border communities, he found that many had felt neglected by the government leaving them to fend for themselves. There is this lady, she's called Aisha Bakari Gombi. 
She's leading a force in Borno State to counter the attacks of uh, the Boko Haram in some of the border communities to see to the release of kidnapped children, women by the Boko Haram. Today we can say that some of them can happily return to their farms and to live in those communities again, although they still have to be very conscious on the environment when they move around because it's still pretty dangerous for them. Akim Onapadu told me that the issue goes beyond the government's failure to protect its population, but that in some cases, the state is complicit in using children. The state-supported militia group, that's the CJTF, Civilian Joint Tax Force, both of them are using children to fight in the in that particular region. So according to UN estimate, for example, about 8,000 children are presently child soldiers in that region. I asked Akim what he thought the government's strategy should be to protect communities from attacks against insurgents and to stop more children from being kidnapped. Number one, government has to have a new approach towards addressing the insecurity in the country. You know, it's apparent that the approach has not been working. Security in the country, especially in that region, there should be much more commitment to international collaborations in addressing the problem of that area. There should be much more provision of the needed equipment for the soldiers to fight this particular group. And also there should be much more focus on the non-military approaches towards addressing the problem. You know, there are root causes behind the reign of terror in that region. I think much more focus should be on how to produce programs that to prevent the easy recruitment and attacks on children in that region. And he says the government needs to start prioritizing children. When I wrote my article, someone commented that why should we be talking about child security? Why not talk about general security? But the answer to that is that children have some of their peculiar interests and children are much more vulnerable. So the government must find a way to provide special security at places where children are actually located in schools, in IDP camps, in their homes. Somewhere wondered, unless the government rebuilds the trust with communities living in the shadow of Boko Haram, these communities will find other solutions to keep themselves safe. So one of the coping strategies which I found out in some of the communities, many of them have gone into alliance with the Boko Haram in terms of negotiation for security. And every month they give out groceries to them. They give out whatever the agreement is in exchange for security. When the lives of your citizens are not being protected, then people will lose trust in your government. And that's exactly what we are witnessing presently in Nigeria. So the Nigerian state has to stand up to its responsibility of protecting lives and properties of the people. Thank you, Wale, for digging into the history of all that and how complex it is and how big a task it is for the government to really protect these communities. It sounds like it's it's a real challenge. Seriously, the government must up its game in responding to all these attacks. Our listeners can read more from Hakim Onopajo and Samuel Oknadi about their research in some articles that they've written for the conversation, which we're going to be putting links to in our show notes. Also, they can find out more about banditry in Nigeria and the young people being drawn into it. In a recent interview I did with Sherry Folari at Covenant University for our podcast, Pasha. The link is in the show notes too. Do go listen, everyone, to Pasha. It's a great show.
And now we are crossing the continent from west to east for our second story today to hear about some new research in Kenya about another Islamist group, Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab is a militant group based in Somalia where it's in a kind of violent stalemate with the Somali government and a coalition of foreign peacekeeping troops. From its bases in Somalia, Al-Shabaab continues to recruit people from the coastal region of neighbouring Kenya, including women. To find out more about these women and the complex dynamics surrounding their involvement in Al-Shabaab, I called up Fatima Azmia Badudin in Mombasa to talk about the interviews that she's been doing with some of these women. I'm Fatima Azmia. Uh, I work at the Department of Social Sciences, Technical University of Mombasa in Kenya. My study focuses on uh, recruitment of women and girls into extremist uh, networks such as the Al-Shabaab. And, and where am I speaking to you from today? From uh, Kenya. I'm based in Mombasa. Can you explain to, to our listeners who are Al-Shabaab and what is their kind of goal and what do they want as an organization? Al-Shabaab, a transnational terrorist uh, network, it originates in uh, Somalia. It's mainly a Somali-based uh, militant, I could say, insurgency group. And it spreads its influence in most of the East African regions and even beyond. So ideology is mainly to have a caliphate in the East African region. The primary areas of operation are Somalia, Kenya, Djibouti, Tanzania, Uganda, even today to a level like Mozambique. We're talking in March 2021 and and Al-Shabaab has been in existence since the early 2000s. How much territory does it have and what's the kind of balance of power between it and, and the Somali government? They have their bases. Today, true, we have a particular, we call it a sort of a transition government, but still Al-Shabaab becomes very strong in the southern areas, mainly because uh, of his uh, tax bases, their control. Okay, so they're more powerful along the southern part of Somalia, which is actually bordering Kenya. Your research is focused on coastal Kenya and, and kind of the northern bit of Kenya going down towards Mombasa, which is in the south of the country. Can you explain to me what kind of the dynamics are of this area that you research? So uh, my study is based on the coastal region of Kenya. This includes areas like Lamu, Kwale, Mombasa, Kilifi. Kenya becomes a conducive ground for recruitment from this transnational extremist movement due to uh, the prevailing pockets of marginalized communities and also deprived situations, uh, the broken uh, state-citizen uh, relationships, youth unemployment, and also some underdeveloped areas. But today the trends are changing from what it was before. So it's not only the coast, but we also have other areas which are vulnerable for radicalization and recruitment. And your focus has been predominantly on on women being recruited into the Al-Shabaab. Can you explain why is Al-Shabaab trying to recruit women? So like many other terrorist organizations or insurgency networks, Al-Shabaab also uses women and girls. This is not something very new. But the main reason why Al-Shabaab had this trend uh, emanating is because of uh, women's important roles and the need for their role in tactical operations. Like, for example, when the surveillance increased on men, naturally the trend was to have women now to carry out these activities so that they can bypass this surveillance. Women are more often looked from a passive view of not being violent. So when they carry out activities, it's a shocking thing. And also women and girls can perform many activities in their traditional roles and at the same time as in their combatant roles. Like in the camps, they can be cleaning, cooking and can be combatants also. They can also be sent to Kenya to gather information or find certain things 
They play a very important role in logistic support like hiding members in their houses or weapons. They also become important in fundraising efforts to recruit other women and men mainly because of their social interaction skills and their pivotal positioning uh, in families and the community. So women play a very important role in those contexts. Could you explain a bit about how you go about this research? It was very important for me to understand the person from their own cultural uh, context. So I started with observing terror suspect trials. Then I used to go and talk to the parents, then ask for permission. Some would give, some won't give. Once you get a startup interview, you don't directly ask questions. You just build the trust until the person itself feels like they are ready to talk to you. And I had to stay long periods of time in these communities so that I understand their perspective better. So you've built up this group of around 36 women that you've interviewed and, and you've written a number of, of academic papers about them. But your most recent paper has focused on, on women who joined the Al-Shabaab voluntarily. Can you explain what is the difference between a voluntary and an involuntary reason for joining? When you look into voluntary recruitment, I look into it as women who join out of their sheer will. So this can be based because they like the Al-Shabaab ideology. Or sometimes we have even women who go because of group belongingness that you feel like it is a Muslim group, you have to be part of it or you have joined with a friend. So those are mainly uh, the voluntary aspect. Then you have the involuntary recruitment. That is when women and girls are forced to join these networks or those who join the groups are joining because of particular deceptive or intimidation strategies used by the Al-Shabaab network. You had these 36 women and then you picked up 16 of them who you can categorize as women who'd, who'd voluntarily joined the group. Can you explain what the main factors were for those women? When I made the selection of these 16, those are the women who were mainly inclined on building a caliphate, the ones who were completely uh, resonating with the ideology of the Al-Shabaab. They are very minority, but they play a very important role because they have prominent positions in the network because of their ideological resonance. Then you have another group that might join because of particular anger involved, like maybe they want to get revenge from the state. So because you're not strong as an individual, to now you feel like joining the Al-Shabaab as a revenge motive. Then you have the third one, which I consider as the majority. So the third one is mainly in line with the circumstances based on their daily interactions uh, with the family or you could uh, the peers. Now, these relationships are very important because as a woman growing up in a patriarchal setting, maybe in particular dependency relationships, like you're dependent on your husband or a male relative, or it can be the aspect of She's really in love with him, so she doesn't want to lose him. Or maybe because she's scared, she may not have a man. And, you know, it also comes back to the economics with children. So sometimes you make your decision based on these dependency relationships. Seems like you're volunteering, but it has been shaped because of your family, your uh, circumstances, or you want to be your, the obedient wife. So that is mainly the majority. And then you have the fourth one, uh, which is mainly focused on the camp. That is your voluntariness 
was based on the time you spent in the camp the ideological trainings you underwent in the camp uh, maybe you joined involuntarily but because of the ideological training that is been constantly given to you in the camp now you not you have the voluntariness based on trainings you undergo and i wonder what significance your your findings have for Kenya in particular the the counterterrorism strategies and, and policies that the government is trying to put in place i would say is the study would be more significant in uh, preventing and countering violent extremism because uh, the study tries to understand and place the role of women or in radicalization and uh, recruitment your first we should acknowledge there is a problem second when you look into the topic of women in de-radicalization de- or disengaging or reintegration it's important to have this gendered angle because what fits men may not fit women then what measures can we take when you are trying to prevent women getting into these networks whether it is voluntary or involuntary then also when it comes to voluntary mainly with ideology how can we respond to this ideological tenants that facilitate uh, voluntary recruitment like for example misinterpreted quranic verses so those are some of the discussions we need with these young uh, women girls so that they understand before they make a decision so it comes back into these life skills critical thinking decision making type of interventions that are needed just finally what are you working on next are you still interviewing these women or are you moving to to look at other issues with ashabab i'm still working with these women mainly in line with the reintegration processes but i'm also working on uh, the topic of boys that is uh, the topic of masculinities radicalization and recruitment with boys and men to see whether recruitment pathways are changing and whether these uh, trends are different for men and women Okay, we will look forward to reading about that in the future. Thank you very much, Fatima. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you too for having me. You can read an article by Fatima with more details about her research by clicking the link in the show notes. And now to end the show, we've got a message from Brian Keel, business editor at The Conversation in the US. Hi, I'm Brian Keel, a senior economy and business editor for The Conversation based in New York. My first recommendation is on the controversial topic of vaccine mandates. A lot of companies have considered requiring their workers to get vaccinated as they try to get everyone back to the office. This has prompted some US states to try to preempt this. Liz Tippett, an employment law expert at the University of Oregon, has an interesting take on this debate. Employers don't need to worry about mandating vaccines because they already have plenty of other tools to compel compliance from their employees. As Liz explains, companies have gotten so good at manipulating our behaviors through various types of nudges that your boss probably won't even need a mandate to get you to take a shot. My second recommendation comes from Claire Meta, a psychologist at Manual College. A recent survey asked if you could be one age for the rest of your life, what would it be? The surprising answer was 36, and disappointing for me since it suggests I'm already past my prime. It wasn't Claire, however, who has been studying the experiences of people in the 30s and early 40s. It's an interesting time in a person's life. So much tends to be happening from buying a home for the first time to getting married, to having children, to beginning to really own one's career. Her research found that though these big changes and challenges brought a lot of stress, they also brought a lot of joy too. People also said they were feeling more self-confident and generally happier. Unfortunately, Claire didn't learn when everything goes downhill. That's all for me. Thanks and happy reading. Brian Kio in New York there. 
that's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And many thanks to the conversational editors, Adeju Wanshoyinka, Caroline Southey, Julius Mayna, Brian Keel, and Stephen Kahn for their help with this episode. And thank you to Alice Mason, Imriel Morgan, and Sherai White for our social media promotion. If you want to learn more about any of the things we talk about on the show today, there are links to further reading in the show notes where you can also find a link to sign up to our free daily email. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us on podcast at theconversation.com. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. And I'm Wally Fatade from Lagos, Nigeria. Thanks for listening.